Uh, the first thing you should do is is try to ascertain why it's dying. Mm -hmm. So is it from a, a something like a lack of water? Is it mm -hmm. is it a climatic thing? Is it grown at the right time of year? Hey everyone, welcome back to Ready to Redo. Today we're kicking off our new 101 series. So it's kind of like a second school just teaching us stuff that we don't learn in school but is super important. Today's episode, I'm just going to take a minute. I, I, I sort of fangirled because um, I've been watching Mark Valencia, i.e. self-sufficient needs videos for a while now. He's got over 1 million subscribers on YouTube. So yeah, he's, he's a big bit of a big deal. Uh, he's a king of dad jokes and gardening and he's joining us today. So after working in the Australian military, he's now all about self-sufficiency and growing your own produce. And he teaches us tips and tricks for beginner gardeners, proper soil hacks, composting, whether or not to save a dying plant, and some pineapple secrets that supermarkets are just not telling us. And of course, much more. Without further ado, let's jump into it. Yeah, a lot of people, uh, rightly so, talk about Indigenous, um, especially here in Australia, and their relationship to the land, which is so true. And you, and I've been on survival courses in the military, and, and I've worked with in Aboriginal communities up north and everything with some fabulous Indigenous people, for example, and they do have a great relationship to the land. However, we are also human, and no matter where you come from, what creed, we have an inert as humans relationship with with nature anyway because we're part of it and we might live in a concrete city but when you're when you put yourself out in the nature it's what people love you know going on walks or seeing views because we 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 have that urge to get back to it so what i'm saying is it, it isn't that hard it's when, when you trust yourself you can easily get into self-sufficiency because it's something that we're pretty much good at, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. just inherently. It's true because yeah. we're we're part of it. So yeah, you heard it. No excuses. Let's get gardening. Um, and also, yeah, I'm going to do some of these voice insertions uh, throughout this thing. So uh, get ready for that. If, if you can understand that philosophical sort of way. Yeah, for sure. And I think. From the time that you started, was it 2006? It was 2006 when we moved here. True. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah we, okay. Got, we got the property in yeah. 2006. Um, mm. Sort of one foot on the ground. We just slowly got there and it wasn't until 2008 then I left the military. So it was um, sort of off the beaten track in a way and the place looked awful. It was completely overgrown. There was, it was three acres, but probably two acres was trees. Um, and in the middle was a big patch of nothing. Once I got here and started working it myself, um, I realized that this was a really excellent property. It sloped downward slightly, had a great area for an orchard. It was enclosed by big gum trees, which some people think is bad for gardening because the gum trees can suck out the moisture and the nutrients from the soil. Oh, interesting. But it actually makes a really excellent um, mini microclimate for this property. Blocks a lot of the heavy winds. Um, it 
it sort of holds in the heat in winter as well. Um, and, and yeah, it, it works really nicely with the veggie in the middle, orchard on the right, but we've got fruit trees sort of everywhere now anyway. And the treed area in about an acre down the back, away from the house, where the chickens and the ducks can roam around in a shaded area because it gets pretty hot. So, yeah, yeah, it's worked well for us. Yeah, and it looks great in the pictures too, in the videos. And let's blend this also into the topic of education because essentially that's what your channel's about. It's about teaching yeah. people and, and giving them the tools to be more self-sufficient um, with the knowledge that you have. And that's awesome. And you do it in a really fun way too. Um, yeah. and, and so the thing is though, schools don't really teach sustainability or they don't really teach the gardening 101s. They sort of just do the biologies, but we don't really relate that to gardening. And so I've got a, I've got a bit of a scenario for you. So if you had a class of students new to gardening and you're just in the school, maybe a permanent teacher, I don't know, but yeah. what would your first lessons, first few lessons be about? Because you're sort of focusing on the foundations right now. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think I would, my first thing that comes to mind, I don't know if it's right or not, is grow what you want to eat. Um, so to get people encouraged, especially children in gardening, you've got to target a few things that they like. So I would first of all start growing some easy crops like strawberries that taste nice, especially homegrown strawberries, you know, because they're, they're not growing fast. They're not hydroponically grown, which a lot of strawberries are these days. They look great, big, fat, red things, but they're, they're very bland, whereas a homegrown strawberry is always sweeter. And it's Could you of, sort of um, go into the, just for the listeners, what yeah. hydroponic means? Well, hydroponic is grown with water primarily and then the nutrients added to that water. So they're sucking up nutrients and it, you can, it's almost like an intravenous, it's almost like having an intravenous drug into the vein sort of it's easy to access for the plants. But if you grow plants in soil, I'm not saying like lettuce is pretty good hydroponically grown. I'm not a big fan of strawberries personally. Lettuce kind of doesn't matter too much. Although I still think anything grown in soil, particularly nice fertile soil with lots of different micronutrients in it, I think is always better than something grown hydroponically in water. It's not natural, although it works great, it's not natural for plants to grow in water. Um, but we are able to do that by making sure the water's not stagnant, making sure that the nutrients are right for the plant. And the consequence of that is you can get some really good, nice big strawberries, for example, and nice big lettuce leaves, but they don't necessarily taste as good as ones grown in ground. I'll give you a really simple example um, of why. Think about grapes. Why don't they grow grapes, say, in water or something like that? Or grape growing, how you get different tasting wines and different tasting grapes that are the same grape variety but grown in a different region. Why is one better than the other? It's because it's got different nutrients and different rocks and different types of makeup of that ground and soil that makes a grape you know, in different conditions that makes a grape grow differently and taste differently from one region to another, sometimes one property to another. So that's what, I'm, that's what I'm saying when it comes to growing things. 
And now back to that original question about, you know, children and what I would say is say, get some strawberries together, grow them first um, and grow things that they might like to eat, like some cherry tomatoes that can be really nice and flavorful. So while Mark was explaining this, I, I started to think, you know, like it's an awesome idea starting with something that you want to grow and that, you know, you seem like the final product. Uh, and then I Googled how long does cherry tomatoes take to grow? And it's at least 50 days. <laughs> so maybe in that time you could uh, like grow that. But then also while you're doing that, you learn some good gardening habits and have like a 101 lesson during it. This is, I bet this is doable. Like I think this is happening in Melbourne right now. And once you've got that connection of how they grow them and they're tasting it and they're getting excited about it, then you can start going into things that they might not have thought they liked, like a broccoli or um, even a Brussels sprout that's homegrown tastes better than a store one. Yeah. Although, although that's there's a bit of conjecture there. Yeah, yeah. But you know, pumpkin. <laughs> not here um, to start off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Branch out into okay. some of those other crops, and they'll be surprised. But because you've introduced them to growing um, those crops they like, then they start to branch out into other things and get more adventurous. And they might find that they actually love, you know, Brussels sprouts or broccoli or cauliflower or cabbage that they haven't tried before. And that's how you can just grow that excitement about growing your own. Yeah. And I feel like that that's such a great idea because it also extends not not only to children, you know, they're excited about strawberries or whatever, but even bringing that up to high school students or uni students for that matter, like showing them what they can achieve if if they just have the right environment for it and the right, I guess, attitude as well. Yeah. And And sort of going with that grape analogy too, there's different factors impacting on the final product. So things you mentioned, soil. I guess that would be a good foundational class too. Like the, yeah. the basis of, you know, if you've got soil right, um, what else would be good? <laughs> like soil yeah. weather maybe? I think. Yeah, yeah, no, I think you're, you're right on it. So it all does start from that soil. And there's so much involved in that. You, you kind of, if you're in the game and you've been doing this like I have for many years, you sort of know, you've got, you know through feel and smell. So I looked into this and good soil apparently feels sort of soft and crumbly and looks darker even, um, but bad soil apparently is grainy and coarse and it also doesn't really have a smell. Good soil apparently should have an earthy smell, not dirty or like rotten, <laughs> would not recommend, but an earthy smell. Hmm, the things you know. But if you're just starting out, it probably needs an explanation. And, you know, and the best explanation is soil um, can't be dead. Soil has to be alive, just like your plant is. The more alive your soil is, the better your plants are going to grow in it. Because your plants are not only just going to be sucking those nutrients out of it, but it's going to be getting built through those, those microorganisms and those larger animals like worms and, and other things in the soil that, that works to help the roots take up nutrients and you know, work in that symbiotic relationship with the plant. So symbiotic is essentially a fancy way of saying a mutually beneficial relationship. So sort of like if you get a puppy and then you feed the puppy and you give it all its love and then it gives you back things like affection and pooping on your floor and all that good stuff. 
So if you've got really good, healthy soil, which is the cheapest and easiest way for a home gardener to go, is not to have an expensive hydroponic system or lots of expensive nutrients and chemicals. You know, you want a really good soil base to start off with. That means composting your own veg, your own kitchen scraps, growing it slowly, slow composting or fast compost, faster if you're gonna use a, a tumbler maybe. I like to use a whole range of different methods of composting. Um, using uh, good sourced animal manures, either from your own chickens and, and poultry or from your own horses or things that you know that are, are safe, that they haven't been eating herbicides or pesticides either, because that can be an issue as well. But when you've got that soil starting to build up, it'll just get better over time and it will grow healthier too if you keep onto it. Mm. And I, it was your video about yeah, the basics of soil and the inorganics versus the organics that really, you know, sort of surprised me because I realized that my soil is very dead in my backyard and that's why things weren't growing. And I, the method that you shared on the video was, um, I think something your grandparents told you maybe like just digging a hole in your, um, in the soil, yeah. in dead soil and chucking in some, you know, like lettuce or whatever garden stuff. So all you have to do is get your garden scraps, get your food scraps and everything, dig a massive hole in your garden deep enough so that rats can't get to it and flies and everything, and then put all your, you know, like food scraps in it, pack it in, pack all the food in and cover it, water it a little bit. And what naturally happens is that things will break down and over time you'll get very organic and healthy soil. I tried this and it works. Plus you're not adding to landfill. So very big bonus. What happens when you bury kitchen scraps in the garden? Mm -hmm. That video, I think it's, I don't know, I can't remember now, but it might be over 8 million or more. Yeah, that's crazy. that's crazy. Um, it is crazy because I didn't take a lot of time to create that video. I honestly thought that it was fairly um, self-explanatory and most people would would uh, say, oh, yeah, seen that. Because, you know, like I said, my grandparents used to do it. I'd watch them do it and I thought it was a fairly logical way to do things. But, yeah, that's the thing. We've come a fair way away from that, um, that, that it, is, it is remarkable of how easy that is. Literally, it's so it, quick. The concept. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And yeah. Other, sort of other concepts that are similar to that which you thought were were so self-explanatory like you thought it was so normal that everyone really would know but doesn't so is there anything similar to just burying your scraps and creating organic soil from that um well there's compost making <clears throat> that's the way nature works you know my eye thing is look and see the earth through her eyes so for a little context, if you're on the audio or the podcast version of this conversation, Mark is pointing to his t-shirt, which is the self-sufficient me t-shirt, and it has a lovely eye and the earth representing the pupil. Very cool. And, and that's one of my major principles for me every day when I'm thinking and trying to solve problems in the garden. I think about that. And that's why this, you know, some people just hate this, this, this logo. But who, this, who are they? <laughs> uh, you get the, the haters. You no. do get the haters. Oh, yeah. Oh. Um, but I think, uh, and it can be a bit confronting because it's like one big eye, but uh, getting away from that, um, the reason for it is because that's the way I, I look at it and that's the way 
I think everyone should look at it first. Just to summarize Mark's idea, so it's essentially going with the natural cycle of things. So not interfering with how nature does it, but just to go along with it. Um, so with things like composting. When you're talking about, um, you know, life, things die. Um, and, and when they die, what happens, you know, if it's out in the forest, a tree will fall and it will get eaten by termites and, and little rot because of the weather. And then you'll have new trees and shrubs really grow from that. Um, and they will not only grow from that, they will get more light because that tree's taken a bit of the canopy out, more light can get in. And that tree breaking down provides food for years for those new trees and new shrubs coming through. Home for animals, um, food for animals, and nutrition for new plants. And so it makes sense to get as much as you can out of their kitchen, their kitchen waste and all organic waste and throw it into an area, even if you just like, we've got several things that we do now. I've got a tumbler composter that we can even do paper um, in that. I've done shredded paper before. And, oh, and to of clarify, time. yeah, the ink is safe to... The ink is safe. Okay. It is nowadays. It should all be safe to be able to compost and put back into your garden because they shouldn't sell anything that is not safe anymore that's printed because your little kids could lick their fingers and touch it, and, mm. you know. So that, that shouldn't be a problem. But, yeah, you, you know, you compost heaps of different things, but we've got the three ways at the moment I can think of. Well, four. You can bury them straight into the garden bed, and that's appropriate sometimes. It might not be appropriate for everyone. They might have raccoons in their in their yeah. property and they might just dig everything up. They might have dogs that dig and their beds might not be high enough. So there might be different situations where people can't bury them straight into the garden bed. But I do that. I also uh, have a tumbler that is a bit faster because it heats up and you, you just spin it around every day. So the tumbler that Mark's talking about is the maize compost tumbler. Yeah, so it's the 245 litre one, pretty big, but uh, it's got two compartments and I was like geeking over this before. Uh, I think I may actually get one myself. It's from Bunnings. And yeah, it's super simple. Mark's actually done a review about it and I think it's a really good beginner-friendly uh, beginner-friendly compost tumbler. So not sponsored though, but I would love to be. Yeah, you can balance things out. You add you add kitchen scraps, a lot of wet things, and if it's if it's too wet and and and, and yucky, you can just balance that out by adding some dry stuff, dry leaves or plants and stuff in there. You know, and you just you don't have. There's no real method to the matters. There's no scientific formula or exact science to it. I mean, because I do science, I I guess there is a theoretical side to everything or a scientific side, but but. I, I think what Mark's just saying is that it's more to do with self-judgment, like not having to rely on the intricate details, but just going with what feels right. You just, just if it's sloppy and yucky, add some more dry stuff. If it's really too dry and it's not breaking down, add some kitchen scraps, add some wet stuff. And then the other way, I've got three bays, and that's my main composting system. It's slow composting where I, I throw everything in a really big two metres long by a metre wide bay that I made out of old um, uh, pallets, wooden pallets. I'm out in the garden. Okay, um, sort of a three bay system, so. Right, I want to start my first bay. I've got a whole lot of gardening to do. I know I'm going to get a whole lot of 
debris and everything. So let's cut down these bananas. Uh, these are finished. All these shrubs are done. All these peppers are finished in the garden. And I've got this huge pile. I throw it in the first bay and it's almost up to the top of the pallet. Mm -hmm. Within about five days, it'll lower down to about a foot um, because Jeez. it all crushes down. Meanwhile, we're cooking in the kitchen and I'm filling, we've got one of those fermenting bins. It's like, you know what they ferment beer in? Those containers. Oh, the, yeah, yeah, I've seen those, big, yeah. Big white containers. Yeah. Well, you can get them in 15 litre containers. They're usually yeah. 30 litre beer containers and they ferment beer in them. Mm. Well, I got, you can get them at half that, you know, it, you can get these Boschke buckets and all these fancy composting yeah, I've seen things those. for your mm. kitchen. They're all good too, but this works really well. One of those fermenting things without the fermenting hole in the top because right. you don't, you just want the lid to go on with no hole. Mm. Is that because, because you don't, don't want, want to aerate it? Kitchen. Yeah. You yeah. don't want your kitchen to stink out or anything like that. Yeah, either. that's fair. But yeah. you just put all your kitchen scraps in there within a few days, especially if you had a few lots of meals with veggies and vegetable scraps. You throw them all in that and when that's full, um, we just toss it into the first day of our composting system. We do that for months and months. Microbes and worms all eating it all away and changing it, changing the structure of it. And then eventually after about six months of doing all that, you, you stop and you start turning it into the second bin. Yeah, yeah. You'll find underneath it's already composted down, but you don't use it quite yet. You use that to cover the, the actual top that you've been still putting on which is still dry and not finished composting yet. So you use a fork and you just you just pull up the top half, put it into the second bait, it then is on the bottom. And then all that beautiful compost and dirt that's created that black gold underneath, you resist using it, you shovel all that out and you throw it on top. And then that becomes the top and it's covered like in dirt. If you do it, you know, in, in threes, when you're turning the first pile into the second, then you've got, then you can start using that first one again. And then the second goes into the third, you can put the first and the second. And so you can get a constant thing going if you're quick enough at it. That doesn't always work like that, but um, if you're organized enough, it can. But I tell you what, that slow growing compost is, uh, is just magic stuff for the garden. You don't need a lot of it either. But it is magic stuff. It's probably, you cannot buy that stuff. You just know why you could buy it. Make it your own like that. Um, it is, yeah, real gold. Right. And I guess a tip for maybe the listeners who, who are listening, I guess, yeah. Um, a tip to make that slow compost. If there's one tip that you would say is a general thing to remember, what would it be? Don't overthink it. Ah. Because you, <laughs> if you go online, you'll have all these people tell you all these rules. Yeah. Don't make sure your compost doesn't get too wet and soggy. If your compost is this colour, if your compost is this moisture, if your compost doesn't have this moisture, there's all these rules and people just go, ah, oh, bugger, that, that sounds too hard. No. Me, yeah. <laughs> I was just getting very personally triggered by by the moment that Mark says don't overthink because I have literally been told that by everyone. But anyway, um, composting, yeah, I get it. it. I tried many times and I stank out everything. I attracted all the animals that I didn't want. Um, it turned real bad, but I think just try again. Try, try again, Joe, try again. 
And I guess yeah. with the compost that you make, is that sufficient enough? Just having compost to use as soil, is that essentially what you do? Well, it's it's not really. I still buy soil, like, um, but it's never as. Uh, but then you then you then you um, improve it. Uh, I'll go buy some gar- good garden soil and then put it in there and then mix it in with my own compost and fertilizer and all that. It'll be good because I'm putting all those good ingredients in it, but it won't be as good as some of my older beds that I've been constantly working on over the years. But it'll get there. And that's what I'm saying to most people. Don't, you know, your gardening, especially if you're new, um, don't, don't take any uh, failures to heart too much because it's quite normal for a bed to mature a bit. And as it matures, your crop success will get better as your soil improves as well. But what you do want is not just broken down compost as the soil. Um, You want also those other types of micronutrients and trace elements that you get from inorganic stuff like rocks and and, uh, and minerals that, that, so you can only get that from broken down rocks and granite and soil that can then, that, that comes with standard soil. Right. So that all plays a part. Plants not only get nutrients from broken down and composted organic stuff, they also need iron and zinc and other things that they get from inorganic materials. So afterwards I Googled, can you only have compost as soil? And, and no, <laughs> the reason why people don't is, yeah, because it's too much of one thing and not enough of the other. So as Mark says, you need inorganic stuff. So I was thinking of an analogy and I think good soil is like a good buffet. So you've got a good variety. You have a lot of different things making up one amazing buffet uh, and then leading to having enough food to pack into yourself. Now I've just got some made-up people, essentially. And the question is, what sort of crops are easy to grow for these specific people? So let's introduce Bert. Bert is a beginner gardener. And he's a bit busy. He's got like a full-time job or whatever it is. And he's got a pretty small place. It's it's quite cosy. And he really only has space, I would say, indoors to grow something. So what would you suggest him to grow? So only indoors. Yeah. Like, is there sun coming in through a window? Let's say so, yes. <laughs> yeah, because, you, you, I mean, unless you do, you'd have to grow under grow lights because oh. you can't really grow um, uh, substantial vegetables without proper sunlight or light from something, you know, at least, at least uh, you know, grow lights in, a, in, a, in an area or in a room. So, but you can grow plenty on a sunny windowsill in a small small apartment, for example. And I would start with a small little chili plant and some some standard herbs, some basil, some thyme, some oregano, um, coriander. Well, that's an annual thing that keeps that. But, you know, you can get some longevity out of coriander as well. But those types of typical herbs, they're easy to grow. They can do with an afternoon sunlight coming through a kitchen window. And those types of things are good because they don't take up a lot of space, but they, they assist with cooking um, more, than, more than you'd think because like a chili can add so much flavour to a bland dish. I'd say this to a lot of uni students 
um, that I talk to and, and have correspondence with and they make comments on my videos. They say, you know, I live in an apartment, I'm a uni student, I don't have much money, you know, what could I grow to help me? Well, we've all been there when you're sort of scavenging for a, for a bit of dough. Um, you can make a great meal out of rice. Uh, rice is cheap, potatoes are cheap. So you buy some cheap stuff, from the cheap uh, starches or whatever from the supermarket. And then you can flavor that rice with a few herbs and some chilies. Before you know it, you've turned a bland sort of dull rice uh, cook up into a really nice tasty meal that doesn't, doesn't cost much. And you can add those flavors. If you're gonna buy some chilies, one or two chilies from the supermarket, it's gonna cost you four or five dollars. Literally, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Herbs, they're but like it, three bucks for like two sprigs yeah. or something, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so I might have just exaggerated a little bit, but in reality, it's just using two sprigs for some sort of dish like curry, I don't know, a curry on taste.com, but then leaving the rest in the fridge because there's like 10 more to use, but you don't know what to use it for. And then a week later you find it moldy or dried out in your fridge. So perks of being a non-grower. But a top tip actually for, I can only speak for dill, but uh, you can actually freeze dill. So if you have too much, then you can freeze it and then we use it for like baked fish. So you can put it and put it in the oven and bake it. And it has, it retains the same taste. It's really good. Um, so I would highly recommend that. You only need one or two to flavor a meal, a little bit of basil, a little bit of this and that, and you've got yourself a really nice flavored dish. So that's what I would start with and be realistic about it. If you had a, a outdoor balcony on a, on a, uh, a small, a small ter terrace or something like that, um, a small apartment and you had the ability to put some pots out there, well, then you could go more. You could start then growing some, um, some lettuce and those types of leafy crops that grow fast, you know, have a small root system and uh, don't mind small containers at all, but you can get a lot of bang for your buck and you can then have salads and, and, uh, and leafy greens and spinach, that type of thing. And you can branch out more and there's a lot you can do on a small balcony mm -hmm. and then you just branch out from that yeah and they also do have vertical um things as well right like holding up some pots and everything so if you've got a small space you can sort of hang it on the wall and then well let it sit yeah there. yeah there's there's a been a boom in in innovative products yeah. coming out of grow walls you see those herb yeah. walls and yeah that's they have true. all the connected uh irrigation piping through it and, that, and it filters through and it, you water from the top and it filters all the way down and then it can even recycle itself. So if you're on a balcony, you're not having water running over into the next balcony below you or whatever. Oh, so genius. You, yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's plenty of these great systems coming out right. now um, with technology. If you're really into wanting to grow a few things, I don't think a small place or a small backyard or an apartment is an excuse anymore mm -hmm. to not do it. That's true. Yeah, I think you, yeah. there's plenty of things you can get into and plenty of products out there that can assist you growing in whatever space, vertically or whatever. Mm, that's true, yeah. yeah. And we've got um, Winona here who is a forgetful waterer. She just forgets, like it just doesn't cross her mind. Of course, uh, Winona is not just an excuse to uh, take the blame off me. Um... 
So is there any sort of plant that survives this harsh environment? <laughs> oh, um, well, I suppose there are some hardier plants than others, uh, but I would go down the line of, because, you know, you're looking at, say, a fruit tree like a citrus that, that could be neglected a bit and you can get away with it. Um, but if you're growing leafy vegetables and that type of thing, you really do need to water them regularly to get the most out of them. Otherwise, even lettuce will go quite bitter if it's stressed out. Same. Let me just repeat it in case you didn't hear that. Lettuce will go quite bitter if it's stressed out. If it's stressed out. So it wants regular water. So my, my advice would be don't go looking for water-wise plants, although there are plenty probably out there. I just can't think of any great examples off the top of my head. Um, go for looking for a, a watering system that you can set and forget. And there are plenty of good little systems out there, like I was just talking about. There are, there are mini watering systems that you can set up. There are whole you know, systems that you can buy that have everything already done practically. You're just going to put the plants in it and have the water access and, and that will be it. And they're pretty simple to set up and it's pretty easy to do. Mark also mentioned this other alternative to me, which is these porous watering capsules. So if you chuck some into your soil, it will gradually drip water out, you know, now and again, whenever your roots need it. So it's like a, literally an auto watering system um, that is super low maintenance. I've never tried it though, so I, I will update you guys. So that's why I'm saying people need to investigate and look and, and research uh, and you, you, they can solve any of those types of uh, problems that they have. They're too busy to garden. Yeah. I don't remember <laughs> watering. You know, I keep forgetting the water. Everything dies on me. Um, you know, I have, don't have enough sunlight. Well, there's always there, these things now can be solved mm -hmm. easily throughout yeah. through technology. Yeah, and I think it's like the initial investment, but I feel like the word investment means that it will, you know result in something better than what you like first pay up so i feel like it's yeah, getting over yeah. that initial speed bump yeah that's right and in, as, when talking about investment as well people tend to forget that um the extra benefits that you get out of growing your own too the mental health benefits yeah yeah the exercise true. the tranquility you know you get out of uh, the satisfaction mm. you get out of growing your own yeah, for sure. Um, so there, so if you added all them up, it's not just a fact of I purchased this pot for 50 bucks, that's a lot of money, and I'm growing lettuce in it. I could purchase that lettuce for $2 and get 50, you know, 25 lettuces before I make my money back on this thing, you know. Um, but it's not as simple as that. This reminded me of some tomatoes I tried growing last year. <laughs> I bought three punnets of those seedlings, so it cost like 12 bucks or something. And then I pulled a Winona and then I forgot to water them uh, and they got eaten through. Uh, so I ended up harvesting three tomatoes, three tomatoes, which would have cost less than a dollar. So then I just stress ate them. You've got to look at the whole picture um, of how much benefits you're getting and if you you can then put a price on that you'd find it's a lot more 
benefit and a lot even more monetary value out of it than you think yeah it's like growing your own baby but i guess you eat it so (laughs) same but different (laughs) essentially (laughs) and and there's also another guy um everett everett eats a lot eats huge amounts of food and wants something that's fast but also you know quite easy to grow and has a big yield and he's quite good at watering he's not like winonia winona and um what would you sort of recommend him to grow so eats a lot yeah eats a lot wants a big crop of something big yields yeah big yielding things well Mm. tomatoes oh that's true yeah even um a small pot type uh determinant tomato that's one that doesn't grow too big because tomatoes have two types. You've got the determinant and you've got the indeterminate that grows like a vine and keeps growing. So even the small ones you can get, um, you know, three to four kilograms of fruit off one in a season uh, with over three months or so, three or four to five months. So you can get good bang for your buck in a small space from growing tomatoes and tomatoes can be added to so many things and used in so many different ways, as we all know. Yeah, uh, didn't so you say it was one of your favourite things to grow? It is the favourite. Yeah. The, the, the number one, my well, number one. Yeah, I think. my number um, one fave. And you know there's over 20,000 different varieties of tomatoes you can try. Oh, Jesus. How many have you grown so far? Oh, I don't know, but it but, would only uh, be several hundred of oh, different varieties. Yeah. So, you know, you, I, I'm never going to get there and I, no one will, but... I don't know, actually. Surely there's a way to Patreon mark and and get everyone to send in like a tomato from across the world. (laughs) Hit me up if you're interested. If you're into into tomatoes, there's a a long (laughs) list of different ones you can try. I feel like if you want to specialise in anything, you could just be a tomato grower mentor. Like surely someone would (laughs) want to follow in your footsteps. But yeah, I think, oh, there was another one. So if, um, not a person anymore, but this one was, so if someone does have a dying crop or something, a dying plant or veggie, what sort of things should they look at and assess and see whether it's even able to like survive or whether they should just let it, let it die? Uh, The first thing you should do is, is try to ascertain why it's dying. So is it from a, a, something like a lack of water? Is it, is it a climatic thing? Is it grown at the right time of year? A lot of people, because <clears throat> they'll grow from, if you go to Bunnings, for example, uh, or a nursery, they will sell all types of seedlings out of season. It's easy to raise seedlings. Um, you can grow them in a controlled environment and then put them out in the nursery and people come along and if they're not sort of savvy with the right season, they'll see these perfect, nice little seedlings and think, oh, great, I'll grow some tomatoes. But it might be in the middle of summer in the subtropical climate like here, and they get them home and they'll just perish because it's just too hot for them. Uh, And that's no fault of theirs or anything. It's just that it's not the right time of year to grow them. And so you've got to make sure it's the right time of year. So are you growing that plant at the right time of year? Is there any, is it getting enough nutrients and water? You can usually tell that by the plant wilting and those type of signs. And a tip I learned from someone somewhere was to put your finger into the soil. So around like two centimeters deep or something. And if it's dry near your fingernail and your fingertip, then it's time to water it. 
then y'all would look at, is there some type of obvious pest damage? Like, is there something chewing at it? Because um, if enough chewing insects are, are sucking on or, or chewing the plant, that will suck its energy out and, and it'll make it die, of course. And then if there's nothing like that um, and it's getting plenty of water, then I would look at why then is it, has it got a type of disease? If it looks pretty good and there's no diseased leaves or, or things like that, maybe it's getting eaten from the base, something you can't see. So right, like at the roots, be, basically. Yeah, there could be nematodes in the soil, little small um, creatures that are attacking the roots and you might have to investigate to see if it's that. Or the soil might be too wet, you know, it might be too uh, clay or if it's in a pot, it might be um, water damaged because the pot doesn't have good drainage. Um, there's, so there's all those little signs you've got to look at uh, to establish why that isn't, uh, isn't working. Yeah, um, it's a lot, right? There's a lot to... It seems like it, but yeah. it's not. It seems like it, but it just sort of rolls off in an instant. What you can, you can kind of tell. And, and the longer you do it, the easier it gets. I'm not a, I have done no horticultural degree. I'm all completely self-taught um, from the internet and reading, but mostly just from doing, getting out there and looking and observing and, and retrying and, and finding out why things uh, perished and why they did well and learning through experience. And, and, and yeah, that's true. I encourage that more than anything because when you're out there doing, you're doing. And that's the fun part. Uh, I just wish more people would have more, more of a go at it. That's why I say get into it. That's why tagline isn't necessarily get into the video, which I say at the start of most of my videos now, but it's get into it, meaning just take that step and get into it because you'll find that it's not that hard. And especially someone like myself, uh, uh, yeah, who, who can, if I can do it, like many people say, anyone can. And I really deeply mean that. And uh, I just wish more people would get over that and stop looking at the, the, the roadblocks or thinking there's roadblocks or making excuses and just follow it, just step off that ledge and get into it. So this began our passionate rant about practical versus theoretical work, which I hope you enjoy. Uh, if you're also passionate about this topic, then I suggest you check out the last episode where I dedicated it to the importance of practical work. Yeah, and I totally, totally agree with the practical element. It's really frustrating that I think a lot of schools do theory too much and mm. we're thinking about so many things but yeah. we don't connect with what we're learning because we're not doing it. And yes. I think that frustrates me so much because yeah, there's so many missed opportunities to actually jump in or get into something because we're so caught up doing an assignment and writing an essay instead of doing the thing. Um, yeah. And gardening very, makes that very, fun. I'll tell you a quick story. My father-in-law um, uh, told me once, this is several years ago, he was he used to be a teacher. Um, in Western Australia, but he had many roles. He was a geologist as well, and he also uh, uh, was drafted into over to into Malaysia during the Vietnam War, I think it was. Yes, and uh, but anyway, as a teacher, he because he was a good teacher, they made him sort of go in with a bunch of troubled teen boys. 
probably a set of about 20 or so. So a classroom of troubled teens, and he was uh, supposed to somehow try to teach them because they were kind of unteachable, right? Um, And the theory, this is just what you were talking about. He said, bugger the theory. You know what I'm going to do? After about the first week, he said, nah, I know what to do. And what he did was he said, the boys came to school that next week. And when they walked in, their eyes were like that because he had a car motor in the middle of the classroom. (laughs) Yeah. Really? Oh, that's awesome. And, uh, And that's what he did. He just got them tinkering with this with this machine and fixing it and working out how it works and just being doing the part, not theory, doing. And then from that, their maths picked up, their English picked up, and they all they you know turned them around. Mm. And that's and about engagement. Yeah, it's about getting yeah. them interested. Yeah. If they can see it with their own eyes and touch it, and and really, mm. if they move a knob and it directly does something, then they can immediately like connect the two together yeah. instead of having to read a paragraph about it. No, I agree with you so much that we tend to focus too much on theory and we don't do enough doing when we're educating, especially young people. Because, you know, young people want to be doing and let them do and let them make mistakes and then learn from them, in a, even, exactly. especially in a controlled environment. You should be standing back like this as a teacher and letting them make a few errors, you know, oh, yeah. uh, and then um, correcting and then showing and then, you know, demonstrate, let them practice. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's going to like the, you introduce the class, you say why it's important. Well, this tractor is going yeah. to help you do something or this, you know, like this plant is going to be something you eat, like what you said for your class, like your makeshift yeah. class, showing yeah. them what they can do. So now they know the reason why. And then yeah. just let them let them run free and, and sort of just try yeah. it for themselves. And that's how they gain the confidence to do things. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. 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 I think we would get a lot more out of our younger people and set them up better for their post-school, whatever they want to do, set them up much better if we had a, a better learning environment. Of course, you can't do away completely with theory. I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying what we're talking about is introducing more practicality, standing back a little bit, letting them make some errors in a controlled environment, I think that would set our students up much better. Um, gardeners are the biggest optimists in the world because <laughs> they always expect that their crop is going to grow, that that plant is going to grow. If they didn't, they wouldn't plant it. So when it fails, um, that's part of gardening. You know, and it's a good sign when you have failures, but you're still getting out there and doing because that means you're still very optimistic. And I think being optimistic is one of the best things you can be yeah. in the you know True. for your life. An um, optimist, but also a good waterer. So you got to pair the yeah. two together, or else you're just going to fail anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. And and um, the, because your channel is essentially split into like you know self-sustaining, growing your own stuff, but it's also about sustainability. Because you have mentioned a lot about pesticides and how to be conscious of what you're doing, because it could be saving your plant. You know, it could be yeah. creating great harvest, but you're inadvertently also impacting the environment in a negative way. And so could you sort of elaborate on 
these pesticides that we use and what the results can be. Yeah, okay. It's tempting because it's an easy fix to be able to use a systemic pesticide, a really strong one. You know, there are different types and levels of pesticides that you can use. And sometimes, um, you, you know, you can use a homemade remedy to get rid of certain insects and, 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 and pests in your garden. We're not talking about them, you know, using some pest oil that you can make up with a little bit of water, some dishwashing liquid and some cooking oil is different. You know, that, that is quite fine on the garden. I actually use this method for my cherry tree. So I sprayed it with a mix of like a tiny bit of dishwashing liquid mixed with a lot of water. Um, I didn't add oil, but it was totally fine. It really worked. Um, plus you can't actually taste the dishwashing liquid on the fruit. So win-win and you're saving the bees. That's different, very different to a systemic pesticide like say Roga being used in the home garden. Um, because what happens is you create a, 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 a vicious circle. You, you mow down all the pests with an application of a systemic pesticide. Your crop grows fine, but you've also wiped out everything because they're not, they're not targeted. They will knock out the spiders. They'll knock out the, uh, the, the wasps, the bees. They'll knock out everything, those pesticides, as well as the baddies. Um, and you're then always in the picture. You don't want to be in the picture. If you want a good organic backyard, you want to be out of it. You want to let nature fight it out. And I see this all the time in the garden, wasps attacking and aphids, aphids getting eaten by, yeah. um, by, by beetles and all that. And that's what you want, birds eating the grubs. Yes, birds will take the odd berry. Birds will eat an odd, you know, peck of tomato here and there, but they'll also eat a lot of grubs and you, that way you're not spending money on pesticides or extra stuff you're not ingesting this terrible stuff in your own system and building up this terrible uh, chemical in your own system um, and you're just letting nature take its course sometimes there is an imbalance often it's not if you've got a good backyard that that's got a that, that you've looked after and, and, and harnessed, it's usually stays quite balanced. Our place is very balanced, very balanced. After our conversation, I actually asked Mark what the most sustainable thing to grow is. Um, for, for example, like what supermarkets use too many pesticides on and um, what actually is bad for the environment. So Mark said tomatoes, uh, <laughs> unsurprisingly. And the reason is because supermarket tomatoes are almost always grown with pesticides or fungicides. And they're often picked green for better transport um, and radiated to eliminate and like those pests. Plus, they're artificially ripened using ethane gas. So there's a lot of energy and stuff involved in that. So if you want to make a better impact on the world, then you can grow your own tomatoes. The pesticides are, I, maybe even a good analogy for that is like a Band-Aid because essentially it is good to treat the problem, but often it's not the solution to something. It's just a, you know, a, a way to help it. But if you're not yeah. focusing on the cause of the wound, like if you're not, focusing on trying to find something to fight the infection, like good soil, like um, yeah. watering frequently, then you're relying on fertilizer and like pesticides are yeah. not going to help you much. 
That's right. And unhealthy plants do attract pests. It's natural. So yeah. pests are natural, a part of the garden anyway. And when I do see pests, it's at the end of the season, say when the cabbages or the broccoli is going to seed um, or I've neglected them because I've already harvested them. Those plants then get attacked by caterpillars or the climate changes and we're coming into summer when you're not supposed to be growing certain things. Well, those plants that are growing at the wrong time, they get attacked by pests because they're weakened and the pests know it. It's like, it's like you know, flies laying on a, I mean, it's a horrible analogy, but flies laying in a, on a dead carcass, you know, an animal, um, because it's dead and the maggots then eat it and that's the way it goes. It's like um, pests will definitely attack plants that are suffering or plants that aren't doing well and that aren't, that aren't healthy. So if you can um, grow them at the right time, grow them, like you said, in a healthy soil and all that um, and, and a good ecosystem, well, then you know, you're going to have better gardening success without having to um, wipe out all those, all those good soldiers out there um, that are just trying to live as well. And pests do have a place. So on a side note and a top tip, uh, I asked Mark about dying plants and how, you know, whether we can actually collect the seeds from it. If it's got like aphid infestations or if it's, you know, been bitten at and all that. Uh, and he said it's okay. So as long as, you know, it's not obviously very harmful looking or something, it should be fine. Being able to sort of observe a plant and seeing that it's so infested by pests I guess, yeah, is a good indication to let it go, to sort of realise that this isn't, you know, they're, they're being attacked for a reason. It's not because they're great, healthy plants that they yeah. should stay, but more so like, oh, okay, well, that's, I'll learn for next time. Like, I won't grow it here because obviously it's just going to be the weakest link and sort of just die anyway. I just had a thought, what if I'm the weakest link and I'm the reason why everything's dying? <laughs> Probably, I yeah. And I'm not the only one that knows this. Um, lots of gardeners talk about this. It's the sacrificial plant. Have you heard of that? Oh, yeah, yeah, it is literally the weakest link and you sort of just yeah. sacrifice it off. So, yeah. You, yeah, you'll have, you know, like you might grow six broccoli plants. You'll have one might be on the edge of the garden that's not getting as, as much sun or as much nutrients. You'll find that that plant will start to get hit by white moth, you know, and grubs. Oh, yeah, and yeah, they suck. What people do is they, you know, straight away come out with the pesticide and spray that plant. Just leave it. Leave that plant get hit. It'll get eaten. And those other five will just grow nicely. So you'll have a sacrificial plant that really shouldn't probably survive anyway. Let the pests eat that. And it'll take the focus of your other ones. doesn't always work like that. Of course. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But <laughs> Just grow so many loosely, sacrificial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Loosely, it, it, it is uh, a good explanation of what can work. I don't, I don't ever get alarmed about pests in the garden. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Hey, do you want to hear some dad jokes? Oh, my gosh, yes, please, yes. So, yeah, this seems a bit random, but um, at the time, Mark was doing a dad joke competition thing. Um, and this is on a second channel called Self-Sufficient Me Too. So if you want to check out who won and what the jokes were, then you can have a look at his channel. Okay, some dad now, jokes. These, these are, I haven't vetted these, okay? okay. So okay. I'm just going to read them out. Uh -huh. I, hope they're, I hope they're clean. Let's see. Did you hear about the gardener who went crazy? No. He was hearing, he was hearing voices in his shed. 
very dad joke. I think it's optimal <laughs> dad joke, yep. Um, what do you call three Irish lumberjacks? I don't Tree know. fellas. True fellas. Tree fellas. Tree. Oh my God, of course. Yeah, okay. <laughs> okay, that one's actually quite good. Yeah, it just took me a moment. I have a bird feeder in the garden. It also works as a cat feeder. <laughs> yeah, and a dog feeder too. Because my dog will literally eat everything up. Oh, really? And yeah. birds? Uh, I mean, okay, maybe he'll avoid the birds, but definitely like all the poos out there, he'll, he'll <laughs> definitely attack that. When, like these, I'm not saying these are any good. I haven't vetted these. Yeah. When the moon hits your knees and you mispronounce trees, sycamore. 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 I had like I had um I was looking online um at some good uh, plant puns and there was one that was like what what's um Michelle Obama's favorite vegetable? <laughs> Barack Ali. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, this is too good. And it's got Barack Obama's face superimposed onto a broccoli, and he's all green. It's the best. <laughs> I'll send that over next. <laughs> Why did the scarecrow get a promotion? Because he was the best in his field. And last one, Dad, yeah. did you put my shoes on? No, I didn't think they'd fit me. That, okay, well, you have a lot of like dad jokes to look at. Um, and I think, cause this one was specially requested from um, a listener to sort of gauge, it's about indigenous, indigenous and native plants and sort of like protecting the environment um, because yeah. yeah we want to do well we want to make our gardens look good and everything but i think similar to the environmental footprint where we're pesticides and everything killing off things what are the impacts of non-native species like are they uh, you know harmful to our gardens or how how can we go about creating a helpful garden for animals as well yeah. Yeah, no, that's a good question. Um, but I, I don't think overall uh, non-natives are bad because as long as they're not invasive and, and, and turn into a weed that can clog up our waterways or our bushland and, and affect other plants and crowd out things, if they're, a, if they're an introduced plant but are still a nice flower that bees you know, like to eat and introduces birds into your garden and other creatures, and animals that can help the ecosystem. I don't think it matters if it's native or not. But what I will say is native plants uh, like calistamins and those beautiful native fruiting trees um, like a Fraser plum or something like that, um, berries, Meridian berries and that type of thing, those Australian natives can, even a macadamia nut, for example, those, those um, are native so they will obviously grow better because they're here, they're from here. And also the animals that are from here recognize those plants and flowers and trees more. So you will, you'll get better success, I think, if you plant them. Now, I'm not a big ornamental type guy, uh, but we have planted several native ornamentals around the property, like um, eucalyptuses that flower profusely uh, that will that will be feed for native bees small little native bees 
the stingless bees, and also um, standard bees, but also uh, food for lots of other pollinators. I mean, people think of pollinators as just bees, but there are thousands of other beetles and pollinators and insects and wasps that also feed off pollen and, and native flowers. So I think that's the easiest way is, I don't think we should be um, scared of non-natives, but if you really do want a good su success and creating a good ecosystem, introduce a few, you don't have to fill your yard with natives, because we've got 140 plus fruit trees and not all of them are native to Australia, of course, um, most of them aren't. But then scattered around, we've got these, these natives that introduce and, and sort of coax the, the animals into the yard and then they find the orange tree and they find the mandarin and they find the plum and then they pollinate those plants and they find the veggie patch in the middle and that's how it works. Interesting. And are there sort of like easy to grow um, shrubs or trees or plants um, that will attract these pollinators as well and improve? Well, yeah, especially the natives. And that's why people do like native gardens because they're set and forget. They don't have to worry about them. They're drought hardy usually. Um, if you pick the right plant for your region and area, they usually they usually grow excellent, and you don't have to care for them that much. Uh, in fact, over caring for some of the natives, they come with a warning: don't over fertilize or don't fertilize yeah. it because you can kill them because they don't want too much love. Relatable yet again. Right. <laughs> so that's that's how easy some of them are to look after. Okay, yeah, and I bet they just have like a list of those on Bunnings or do you have a personal favourite? Oh, I'm trying to gather as many as possible. Uh, mm. I've got a little uh, area out the front that I, that I sort of got rid of all, um, a lot of the ornamentals that mm. we didn't recognise and yeah. I'm putting several uh, fruiting natives in there. Right, um, like what like, mm. Well, you know, things like um, native myrtle, um, the meridian berries, um, the Fraser plum, the Davidson plum is another one, very sour plum, but it's, um, it's nice. I actually don't mind eating it uh, just the way it is. A lot of people, it's too sour for many people, but you can make, you can make it into jams and all that. So there are a number of, and it's growing because, because people are selecting more and more uh, fruiting and indigenous type bush tucker plants, that industry is growing more and more, pardon the pun. Interesting. Um, and more people are selecting it. So if you say go to a major nursery, you'll find that they'll have a section of, of native food plants or bush tucker plants that you can choose from and, and, and start growing them. And they, they double. They double as, as good, uh, you know, animal attractants um, as well as grow easy as yep. well as food. Yeah. because they're adapted to our climate. That's actually, I think that would be a great place for people to start as well, right? Like um, easy to grow yeah. things, yeah, that are actually beneficial for our environment as well. Also, if you've got a friend who wants to get into gardening, then you can definitely gift something like this. So give them a good native plant that naturally attracts pollinators. Mm. And now let's end this with some rapid fire. <laughs> so, yeah, a garden tool purchase you keep depending on, and it doesn't have to be this amazing like gadget, but something you rely on and use often. Well, it's not really a purchase. It's something I took with me when I left the army, oh, and that okay. was my ET, my entrenching tool. 
So it's a, a little, and it's about 50 years old now, but it was, it's issued to every soldier and it's called an ET, entrenching tool. And it, I've dug physically six foot deep pits with this tiny little shovel. So it's a, it's a shovel, but you screw the top of the head and you can make it into a pick or a shovel and you can use it like, like a pick or you can spread it out and, and make it flat and use it that way to shovel dirt. So that, that is my go-to tool. I just love it. Have you named it anything? No, ET. ET, yeah, that's true, that's true. <laughs> nice name. Um, and this is a, a question from a friend. The best tip for growing watermelon? Oh, right time of year. Mm -hmm. And I suppose plenty of water. Plenty, yeah, true. Somehow we got to turn that into a dad joke. There, there is a way. There is a way. I know it is. Um, you, okay, so you said tomatoes were your favourite thing to grow. So we'll cut that out. But your most satisfying thing to grow. Most satisfying thing. Yeah. Oh, that's that's interesting. I think bananas. Interesting. Why is that? I, I think because. I, uh, I don't want to turn this into a really long story, but my uncle who lives over the other side of Brisbane. He was, he's been growing, you know, bananas for a long time and I didn't have bananas here. And he ended up giving me one of his plants and they didn't do very well at all. And in, in fact, they just hated our soil or our, our yard. And um, long story short, they're composted in, no good. But I was a few years back, I was picking the boys up from school and I noticed a banana tree in a vacant allotment that was, must have been dumped there. And it was only a small one. It was just a sucker. And I, so I, it was near a railroad track and uh, I walked down and sort of pulled it out of the ground and brought <laughs> As it As you back. do, <laughs> yeah. 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 And thought, I wonder if this will grow. It grows the best ladyfinger bananas ever. And from that one plant, we've now got probably 30 in our what? backyard. Wait, 30 and of the banana tree plants? Yeah, they just keep growing now, oh. multiplying. So I was Googling how to grow banana trees because I just, you know, for some reason I'm always like, oh, it's too difficult. Um, and yeah, I was right. <laughs> so according to the WikiHow, the amazing WikiHow, uh, I guess I'm being sarcastic. Uh, you need 50% humidity, so at least 50 at least 50% humidity uh, and high temperatures. So in Melbourne, that would not work. Brisbane, Queensland, yeah, which is why we all depend on you guys, and that's why if you want to look into it, banana shortage that happened a while ago, but I remember it like it was yesterday. And uh, and it's such. And uh, the reason I think it's satisfying is because today they pick bananas too green, in my opinion, and they mm. taste a little chalky. They do. They do. Yeah. But yep. when you grow them at home and you let them ripen as much as possible on the tree, well, then when they're, almost, when they're yellow, even especially if you get them totally ripe um, on the tree, they just taste so different and delicious. It just reminds me of my childhood when bananas tasted fantastic, when they must have picked them sort of ripe and got them straight to market rather than 
pick them green so that can be transported long distance and then slowly ripen on the shelf. They are just full of sugars and they taste beautiful. And that is satisfying to me. Yeah, that's a the great answer, actually. Yeah. Well, yeah. And the plant was free. <laughs> that makes yeah. it so much better. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and the last rapid fire. So if you were going to make a, a delicious um, and easy meal to make, from planting to the actual eating, what would be quick and easy besides the chili and the, the herbs? Well, potatoes, yeah? Some seed potatoes for me because I'm a bit of a potato eater. Uh, I'm a bit of a chip man. I mean, I can't deny it. I mean, I, yeah. <laughs> I, love, my, I love my food. Unfortunately, I, I put in more than I get out sort of thing. Mm -hmm. I, I should be exercising more. But potatoes is very high in calories, um, but it's a delicious food. And if you put in some seed potatoes in three months, they'll usually uh, triple or quadruple what you put in and nothing better like, to, like, like um, anything really fresh from the backyard. But potatoes are particularly good when they're really fresh and straight out of the garden, made into potato chips. Oh, so uh, yeah, yeah. However way you want to cook them. Yeah. I think um, that is such a nutritious, uh, they are nutritious too, potatoes, but such a satisfying and nutritious and, and, and easy bulk for your sort of in and out that you can get. Yeah. Mm. And, and didn't you have a video where you put green potatoes, you said don't chuck away the green potatoes, yeah. chuck them into the soil. What was that yeah, about? But, you just leave them. Yeah, yeah. So if you, well, what happens a lot of the time, you can't really tell when you buy some potatoes from the supermarket, they could be on the verge of, of uh, they could be pretty old. And if they're pretty old, you'll get them home and they turn green, they go green. And of course, they're from the Solanaceae family, which is a poisonous plant. Tomatoes, potatoes, they're the nightshade family, which is actually quite poisonous. So you can't eat the, the you can't eat the green leaves of like you can't eat tomato plants or potato plants or uh, coffee plants, anything from that nightshade, not coffee, um, tobacco, tobacco plants, anything like that, uh, eggplant, they're, they're all very dangerous to eat the foliage or anything from that. But, and, and potatoes, if you leave the potatoes go green, it's starting to get those, uh, those poisons growing in the skin. And uh, so you, can't, you shouldn't really eat them, otherwise it can make you pretty sick. So, but what people do is they go, oh, the potatoes have gone green, they're no good now, so what I'll do is I'll chuck them out. I'm saying don't chuck them out. You can turn them into new potatoes, like I did in that video, plant them out or put them in a pot and put soil over them, and potatoes grow quite easy. And then in three months' time, you've turned those green potatoes say one green potato the other day i planted one green potato and i got back eight or something yeah that was crazy yeah, yeah yeah i think only so, one or two of them had insects in them but the rest were yeah fine. That, that's one yeah. yeah so you recycle you just recycled it mm -hmm. you know recycled that green for eight new ones that that's mm. the same as the, the this is how i found out about your videos the um pineapple the pineapple head and you just chuck it into the soil and you water it a little bit and it'll grow yeah. a pineapple. 
Okay, for you guys who are completely mind blown, yes, yes, I relate. The first time I found this out, I was shocked. So all you have to do is just grow pineapples by chucking the head of the pineapple into the ground, watering it, and it will come up with a mini pineapple a few years later. <laughs> it takes a while, but um, th that's why you see big supermarkets, Coles, Woolies, who cut the heads off. They cut the heads off uh, to prevent you from growing it yourself. So shady, shady companies. Um, and I hope you use this tip wisely. Yeah, yeah, you wouldn't think Genius. it, would you? Don't have to even no. try. And you yeah. see people... The people are, you know, trying to nurture it in the kitchen, <laughs> let it grow roots and stuff. Bugger that. Chop yeah. it off. Whack <laughs> it in the thing. Yeah, yeah. and uh, and you'll be surprised. It'll. It, they're so drought hardy too. They're so yeah. easy to grow. And in two years, you'll have a new pineapple. That's crazy. It'll flower and you'll have the fruit. Yeah. The things you know from gardening and it's just, you just experiment. And I like your channel because of that. It, you just try it. Doesn't work. Eh. That's fine. We'll just do another one. And I think yeah, that's, that's, that's most of the fun of it. Yeah, exactly. And that's the attitude, I guess, from extending gardening to anything that we do. It's, it's mm. just trying, trying, failing, trying again. And the optimism that you're talking about. So yeah, yeah, yeah you've summed it up nicely. Yeah. And, mm. and so thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Yeah. And yeah, thank um, you. Joe. I've had a ball. It's been really good. Yay! Fun it will. Yeah. I, I did say it was going to be a little bit fun. I wasn't sure if you'd enjoy it that much, but yay. Um, where can people find you? All right. My YouTube channel, self-sufficient me on YouTube. And I've also got a second channel that's called self-sufficient me too. That's a bit of a play, but <laughs> it works. Yeah, it um, does actually, right? Yeah. Yeah. The, the difference between the both is my self-sufficient me too is more of an overflow. Uh, I don't constantly update that or upload to that channel, but I'll, I do uh, sort of videos that wouldn't sort of make it to my first. not saying that it's not good or anything. I'm just saying that my first channel, self-sufficient me, has more crafted sort of to-the-point videos. Whereas my second is more now waffly and maybe garden walkthroughs or 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 cooking videos, things that 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 still interest my base, but might not interest a broader audience that subscribe to me on my main channel. Uh, Instagram, self-sufficient me with the underscores between it. Um, Facebook, self-sufficient me. My website, self-sufficient me. And yeah, I've got you have a, a cool blog. Yeah, but I, I was reading your blog on, I didn't even know you had one. So I looked through your website and you've got some really interesting topics and they, Thanks, for the listeners, yeah. yeah, they range to politics and everything if you're interested, but. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I actually do a, quite a bit of different stuff on my blog. I use that as a bit of an outlet to do, uh, to, to create a, a bit of different content there. Um, sometimes it's a little controversial even where I wouldn't sort of go there on my YouTube channel. I'll sort of go there in my blog. And that website is getting an upgrade too, as yeah. we speak. Oh, I've been okay. waiting yeah. on that. So I'm looking forward to that getting done so that I can, uh, I can do a lot more writing. I've stopped it for the last few months while this upgrade is going ahead because it's no use because otherwise, yeah. Anyway, but that, and I also have a forum, selfsufficientculture.com. Oh, okay. So that forum, people can join up. Um, again, I'm not that busy there at the moment. But I have got big plans for the forum. Mm. And so, yeah, join up there if you want to as well. Yeah, for sure. Well, 
Thank you so much for jumping on. And yeah, if anyone who's listening wants to jump on and see his work, like go ahead because you're going to grow a lot of pineapples, I think. Pineapples <laughs> and potatoes, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> cool. yeah, that's right. Thank you. Thanks, Jack. So I hope you guys all enjoyed that one. Mark is just incredible. His videos are on point and they've got a lot of puns and dad jokes in there. So you guys will very much enjoy it. Uh, And if you want to check out more of his stuff, then check out the description. I've got his links there and what he's just explained before. See you next time.